so I'll take a little pause and then I'll do the introduction. Like I said, I've got a little bit of a cold, so (laughs) obviously I'll be sounding extra sexy. Welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. I'm Anna. And with us today is Gustavo Gongora from Translation Studies. Gustavo, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me here. Could you please uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to be a PhD student here at Manchester? Yeah, it all started in Norway, actually. I was in an MPhil there and... I decided to to write my dissertation on translation studies, specifically on Wikipedia. And it was a very nice study, so I said, well, why not taking it to the next level and go for a PhD? So I Google it, and I put Wikipedia, translation studies, and the name of the University of Manchester came in the first place. Apparently there was a PhD before me who conducted research on Wikipedia as well in translation studies. So I said, well, this may be a very good place. So I contacted the potential supervisor. Uh, She replied promptly and, well, she she said that, um, yeah, we would like to have you here. And, of course, then you have to apply for scholarships and everything. But that was a process, basically. That's how I got here. I applied for uh, funding. The first two scholarships uh, from school and another scholarship uh, were rejected. And when I was almost giving up, giving up hope, I got uh, funding from EPSRC, which is Engineering Physical Sciences Research Council. Oh wow! Yeah. So that's quite an unusual funder for a humanities. It is. Yes. PhD. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So so how how come like what why have they decided have they have they told you or they just gave you some money? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was um, well. It was a very competitive process, and they usually allocate uh, two uh, scholarships to Faculty of Humanities every year. Although this year they only gave one. So, and this is a program that is called Doctoral Training Partnership. So I got that one, and also uh, someone who came to be a very good friend of mine, uh, who's doing a PhD in music, got the other one. What is it about Wikipedia that makes it so interesting for translation studies? Wikipedia is a multilingual project, so it's available in more than 300 languages and language varieties, and it keeps growing as we, as we speak. So I think that one of the important things about Wikipedia for translation is that it offers you unlimited options to translate from one wiki to another. So you can translate from one language to another, and you can do that the old way, like copy-pasting and translating your own text. Or you can do it with content translation tool, which is designed by software developers on Wikipedia. Or you can do that with uh, software robots as well. So that's what my research is trying to study, actually. What is your research question? Well, my main research question is uh, I want to study how translation practices have changed within and across four language communities of Wikipedia over the last five years. Especially, I will be looking into the role of new technologies and how these technologies shaped these changes in practices. So my study looks into four different language communities, Spanish, French, Dutch, and Swedish. 
And the reason why I chose these four languages is because the French and Spanish Wikipedia uh, rely on the content translation tool the most. So are they, there are a lot of translations using these bot, uh, these tools, sorry. And the other two, the Dutch and the Swedish, use other programs that are called software robots. And around, for example, in the Swedish Wikipedia, over 80% of the articles were created using bots, not people. Yeah, that, that's yeah. so interesting because in, in my experience, and obviously I kind of tend to switch between Russian and English and sometimes go into Chinese. And with kind of these three, a lot of the time, the content will be quite different. And that's why I would switch between them because there'll be details that, you know, so it was kind of written or edited by people. So that's, that's very, very interesting. Yeah, definitely. And also, this is a very good point, actually, because one misconception about Wikipedia, and I've been asked this several times, is that articles are, all articles are translations somehow from one language into the other, and they are different. So you choose basically what you want to translate. So even the same article in different languages can be radically different. And even if they started as translations, because they evolved in a different way. When I first started my undergrad here, I often used Wikipedia for translation because, you know, all of the articles are connected up and a lot of the time for a historical character, I know what we call him in Russian, but that's a Greek king. And so yeah. he's like anglicized name is something completely different and finding things through wikipedia was a very useful process for me mm -hmm. so that's that's quite interesting how this works it yeah. can almost be a little bit of a dirty little secret of academia can't it that we're told all the time don't use wikipedia but what they really mean is don't use wikipedia uncritically it's actually an incredible resource you just have to be able to use it as your starting point and then sort of take it in an academic direction. One of the things that's come up in my research is just the fact that there are certain articles that only exist in French. And that's quite an interesting thing to me in terms of, so who gets this knowledge then? It's supposed to be this base of, you know, the sort of sum total of human knowledge, but some articles only appear for particular language communities and aren't being translated into other hmm. languages. So did you choose four languages that you're fluent in? <laughs> Well, it's a very good question. Yeah, well, I, I speak Spanish. It's my native language. I can read French. And as for the other two, that's a little bit more difficult. After living in Norway for three years and studying the language, well, basically equipped me to understand Swedish a little bit more. And Dutch is a difficult language for me. So even if I am able to spot some words and, you know, because they have, they share a lot of Dutch and, and Swedish share a lot of vocabulary, but no. And that's one of the challenges of my thesis, actually, because, for example, I have to conduct interviews and all those interviews have to be in English. Also, I will have to rely on translations from those languages into English as well for the analysis and so on and so forth. So it's a challenge, but... Um, it's been done. It's actually not that unusual in linguistics and translation to work with languages that you are not really fluent in. When it comes to translations of Wikipedia articles, do those tend to be translations from English or into English that you're working with or kind of both ways? Uh, there are translations uh, from English into those languages, basically, yes.
Are not. there any examples of translation between those language communities where English actually isn't involved, say an article going from French into Spanish? There are a few, yes. According to statistical data, however, English is the preferred language, is a source language, so most articles are translated from English. There are, however, some articles that are translated from French into Spanish and the other way around. And there are a lot of translations, for example, between similar languages, in Spanish and Catalan, mm. for instance. Um, my guess is that, well, because people are uh, bilingual and they, they, they speak both languages, so it's much easier to translate from one language into the other rather than looking into English article. Uh, you mentioned that you use interviews as part of your methodology. Who are you interviewing and what are you asking them? My method actually starts with analysis of translation policies and guidelines from the four language communities. And that will provide me with basis for the interview. So after that, I will be looking into Wikipedia talk pages, which are like forum spaces where you can actually exchange information. And then uh, there is this third step, which is the, the interview. So we come to this point and I'm going I'm to interview 16 Wikipedia translators. Um, that's my idea, four from each community and they have to be experienced in translation, of course, so they have to, at least they should have around 1,000 contributions to the project, and they ideally should have translated at least 10 articles. It doesn't matter if those translations were from English into their languages, but they could be from any other language. And yeah, I will be asking them about their engagement in the community, what they have done, what they have noticed. Question, for example, will be about how, if they if they perceive any substantial changes in translational practices um, as experienced users of their communities, if things have changed, and if so, how, and also if they feel comfortable with technology, and if they feel that they really can use the content translation tool and the bots. This is also interesting because uh, between these four communities, there are differences in how they use materials and tools for translation. So I'm expecting that, uh, for example, interviewees from French and Spanish probably be reluctant to using, you know, these tools and like, for example, software robots and so on and so forth. So it's more like about how they translate what are the main problems they have encountered and and also there is another question about what in their opinion is a good translator and what in their opinion is not a so good translator speaking kind of of the translation process do you think this could potentially be extended to include non-indo-european languages kind of languages which are less similar especially because the translators, the automatic translators, don't tend to work that well for these kind of languages. Even with translations into, say, Slavic languages, a lot of the time, English and Russian or English and Belarusian wouldn't work particularly well. So how, what do you think would be the future for these kind of languages? When the content translation tool on Wikipedia was launched in 2014, it was only available for major languages like French, Spanish and Italian, German. And so it's been not until recently, actually, that the content translation tool has become available in more languages. And now you can translate from Slavic languages, even in non-Indo-European languages. This tool is constantly being improved. However, 
there's still a lot of things that need to be done. Uh, it's far from perfect. Also, the, uh, for example, there are some other uh, Wikipedia communities uh, from, I think, languages from the Philippines that they rely on bots for uh, content creation purposes. So, for instance, um, there is one Wikipedia uh, in Waray that they create most articles using bots. And interestingly, the same bot that being responsible for the creation of most articles on the Swedish Wikipedia is also behind this other language community. There are some ways in which, you know, this, this is being done, but one of the main problems, however, and this is also related to what you mentioned, is that um, there is an obvious bias on Wikipedia when it comes to non-Western cultures. So, for example, even in major languages, and this is also connected to to what you mentioned before about uh, not having articles uh, or having articles only in French. And it's that African communities or Latin American communities or information from those places are quite underrepresented on Wikipedia, simply because there are not a lot of uh, editors from those parts of the world. So much of what we get is through the eye of editors that are in Europe or in North America. So this is something that has been, well, you know, it's, it's an ongoing issue now. So the translation is almost only part of the question in terms of the, the sort of, I want to say transliteration, but I guess that's not quite the right word. But mm. Moving from one language to another is only part of the sort of bigger issue of language communities on Wikipedia. That's yeah. really interesting. Can you sort of explain in layman's terms how bots do what they do? So are they just automatically sort of going through Wikipedia, finding articles in English and just translating and posting them? The thing with bots is that they, they have been on Wikipedia ever since Wikipedia uh, is online, which is from 2001. And they perform a lot of tasks, not only content creation, but they are, for example, uh, responsible for spotting spelling mistakes in articles, detecting vandalism. Uh, they revert, for example, edits or uh, contributions to articles that are, for example, potentially harmful. And in some language communities uh, like Dutch and Swedish, they are also used for content creation purposes. One uh, thing about software robots is that they were not designed to translate. So they, 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 they are not thought for translation. And so when I'm using uh, the concept of software robots here, I'm using translation in a broad sense, because what they actually do is creating articles um, um, about very specific topics. For example, cannot create a biography or an article about history, for example, using a bot, because the amount of information that you, you know, that you can get from there, you know, changes a lot from one article to the other. So, however, they are being used for articles that are about geography, uh, where you actually you can create uh, towns or cities or something like that, and you just change numbers and coordinates. They work with a specific template. There are uh, users that have to ask for permission in order to use those bots. They get what call a flag, and that allows them to use those bots. So these bots uh, are run by users who are act as supervisors and they work with a specific language like python for example and they use template and then they create the article 
for example, there are some language communities like uh, Swedish Wikipedia, uh, where you can actually tell if the article has been created by a bot or a human, simply because in that community, it was decided that articles that were created by a bot will showcase a template on the top of the article saying, well, this article was translated or was created using a bot. And then, of course, you are very much welcome to edit the article uh, once it has been created. So some of those articles eventually evolved as other users become involved. What sort of implications do you think is going to, to come out of your research at the end? What do you think you'll sort of, will you have learned more about Wikipedia or more about those particular language communities, more about automation for translation? Mm. It's interesting. I think that um, my research is aimed at providing some insight into how Wikipedia language communities translate differently and why people do what they do and and why people and, and this also this kind of relationship between uh, humans and technology and why are some people that are so you know showing a lot of resistance and then you know they don't want to use that and also why are other communities are embracing new technologies the way they do so, for example, um, um, one of the arguments that um, I, sometimes I, I, I hear is that, uh, well, we do use bots in this community because we are, for example, a minority language and we don't have a lot of users. So for us, it's a very good way of making information available in our language by using bots, for instance. And we're so not much concerned with issues of quality, but more like quantity. We want this information to arrive to as many people as possible. And other communities who are like French, Spanish, and they are like widely spoken languages, they are more concerned with issues of quality. That's the kind of thing. Uh, so those are some of the underlying reasons. But also there are questions of why, uh, for instance, French and Spanish uh, translators are using the content translation tool that much. Is it because uh, their languages are like major languages and then the content translation tool works better with those languages? Or is it because they may, be, they, they may not be as fluent in English as Dutch and Swedish speakers are? And, and that's why they rely on the content translation tool and the other users do translations manually, or for, for instance. So those could be some of the things. Seems like something that's been translated through a content translation tool. I suppose if you're going from a language that you're not that fluent in into your, your native language, you can then probably read that and sort of correct it so it makes sense for, for those larger language communities in some ways. Do you think there's, because Dutch and Swedish, while obviously they're not anything like as widely spoken as French or Spanish in globally, then I wouldn't necessarily describe them as, as a tiny minority language. Mm -hmm. Do you see any other reasons why those language communities in particular might be more open to the sort of automation process? Mm. Is that sort of starting to come out in your research already or do you have a, a theory? Well, my, my theory is, uh, is actually what I, what I mentioned before, that in these communities, they are like, uh, they, they are embracing new technologies just because they want to have information available in their own languages. Uh, unfortunately, at this stage in my research, I'm, I'm just uh, working on the methodology right now. Yeah. I'm going to have like my panel in next week. Uh, <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Thanks. 
thank you. Uh, so uh, the, the the analysis uh, they will be conducting. Um, well, it's not going to start until uh, January. So I'm hopefully we'll get more information <laughs> as as I start working on that. But uh, there is also this issue that um, Swedish is very much restricted to Sweden and also Dutch in the Netherlands, basically Belgium as well, and some uh, islands in the Caribbean. But Spanish and French uh, are languages are not only spoken in Spain and France, but in Latin America as well, and also in uh, African countries. So my my guess is that those are more like a they are like you know wider communities, and there is a lot of criteria there. People think differently, so it's not like the way that French think versus, you know, the way that other people think. So I think it's, it's, it's kind of that. So you have to, you have a lot of variety there. So it's very difficult for people to agree on using something uh, in those kind of communities, I guess. So I suppose the larger the community, the more likely there is to be a bit of a consensus around what seems to be maybe the simplest tool as well. Yes. That it's most democratic, most accessible hmm. to, to the community. Hmm. Especially thinking about kind of smaller language communities, I then think, well, how does the usage of the translation tools in the translation might impact the way people think about the language and the way that the language's grammar evolves when it is a very small language that very few people speak as their native tongue? Because you're wearing the Guinness hoodie, I was thinking about uh, Gaelic. Mm-hmm. Um, because there are Wikipedia articles in, in Gaelic, um, and but at the same time, very few people speak it as their first language. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine, you know, using those tools to translate into Gaelic could actually, you know, impact the way people perceive some of the grammar and or, you know, what people think mm. is a normal turn of phrase, potentially. Mm. Or, you know, at least my very much layman's understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, actually, I've, I've been uh, involved with um, the, the Irish chapter of Wikimedia, and so I know that Wikimedia Ireland is working towards having more articles available in Gaelic, and they are doing that at universities in Dublin and all across Ireland, and it has proved like a, you know to be a very successful tool um, because I quite often uh, Irish people complain that they are not fluent in their in, in Gaelic, uh, that they are English speakers, that they only learn uh, Gaelic in in school, and it was like very old fashioned, and that they really didn't enjoy it. So it's now actually when they have come to an age where they actually want to write more in Gaelic, when Wikipedia has stepped in and and now it's you know a lot of users are refreshing their their old Gaelic skills that they were long you know long forgotten and and they are creating Wikipedia articles in Gaelic and they are becoming again uh, fluent in their own language so. And they're learning about a lot about grammar, uh, yeah, as they do the articles. It's very interesting as well when you start to think about how important language is in constituting a community more widely, whether that's you know a national community or a. You uh, mentioned Catalan before. Yeah. You know what, what a great example of a community where language is such an important part of constituting that group, even within a sort of larger dominant group. So it's really interesting to 
to think about how that's happening in these sort of translation communities as well. When you were talking about uh, Spanish being, you know, so widely globally spoken, I I was thinking about how a friend of mine from Mexico who went to Spain for the first time said she couldn't understand anyone hmm. because even though it's the same language, it's it's not the same language. So are there sort of um, is there any movement to sort of get into that localization space and and start putting things in sort of having Mexican Spanish and Spanish Spanish mm. separately. That actually happens in the English Wikipedia, where you have some articles um, that use British spelling and mm. other articles that use American spelling. And the general consensus there is that articles that are about the UK have to be written with British spelling and articles that are about uh, the US or that are more general, like science or something like that, have to stick to American spelling. In Spanish Wikipedia, however, uh, we only have one spelling system, so all articles are, well, stick to that rule. And we have um, the Royal Spanish Academy, which is the, you know, the major institution that uh, rules how the language should be written. But uh, there is no such thing as, um, you know, Mexican or uh, European Spanish. However, there are a lot of disagreements uh, Spanish, within Spanish Wikipedia about lexicon. So vocabulary is really hotly debated area. And that's something I investigated in my master thesis, if we're coming here. So I actually interview people from Latin America and people from Spain that were translating articles from English into Spanish. My findings suggested that translators from Latin America are quite innovative, uh, I would say. They're, they're not really, for the most part, they're not really against using uh, long words. And uh, there are a lot of words that, um, that are English in origin that are used in Latin America that are not used in Spain. And uh, one famous example that we have in Spanish Wikipedia is the word uh, mouse for the computer device. Right. So in Spain, they use the, the Spanish word for it, raton. And in Latin America, they use mouse, the word as it is written in English. And this has, well, been long, long uh, contested article. And, you know, between people from Latin America and Mexico, mostly that say, well, we should use the word as uh, most Spanish speakers use it. Because in Latin America, we have like 90% of Spanish speakers in the world. So we should use a word that people uh, are likely to identify with most with. On the other hand, you have editors from Spain who are like, oh no, but we should stick to uh, prescriptive rules and we should use a word because we already have a word in Spanish that describes the device, so we should stick to it. So and this is kind of uh, the debate that is going on. And we, we see that a lot on, on Spanish Wikipedia. Very interesting. I was, I was thinking in particular because in South America, like Brazil, uh, Portugal is a fairly small country. I'm, I'm very sorry, Portugal. Being from <laughs> Russia, you're a fairly small country. <laughs> and, and then, you know, Brazil is such a huge nation. But then yeah. obviously I would imagine that there are some spelling difference or lexicon difference. And it's very interesting who do you choose, which rules you choose to stick to. Yeah, and I, yeah. I didn't realise that there was a sort of, uh, like a central authority on how Spanish was spoken. I know that there's sort of a, like, is it the Académie Française that's very big on kind of policing yeah. the French language? Yeah. Which, again, has implications if you're, say, like, French-Canadian. But I didn't realise that there was kind of a Spanish equivalent. Yeah. Who polices English? 
no one. No one. <laughs> the no, world no, west no out one. here. We're just, <laughs> okay. We're just making it yeah. up every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, see. So in in Russian, I think like Ministry of Education kind of. So there were a lot of very controversial rulings on where the stress goes in various words. <laughs> How and controversial pe- can that get? I mean, people were very upset. And I mean, I had to learn it for my final exam and like the first question. And now it was so controversial, they took it out. The first question, they would ask you where the stress correctly goes in those words. And then, and then there was a huge debate about the gender of coffee, which... <laughs> <laughs> and and it's it's very interesting because kind of you know they try to get involved but then people feel very very strongly about certain things yeah I, I suppose that kind of ties back to what we were talking about before about how language is so important for for community building mm-hmm. and sort of making identity so uh gustavo one of the things that we ask our guests is if they have any kind of sort of funny story or funny anecdote from their life as a PhD that they might like to share with us. Yeah, well, it's not really that funny, but what often like uh, translation studies is it's not very uh, well known, uh, even when people in humanities. So there is also this misconception that when, when people ask me, what do you study? And I say, well, I study translation studies. And the first the, the first question they, they ask next is, oh, okay, what languages are you translated from? And so it's like this kind of misconception that I, because I'm studying translation studies, I'm necessarily translating, mm. uh, which is more like theory focused. And yeah. so this is kind of, I always have to explain myself and I always have to say, well, no, it's not really like that. And, and then that leads to another conversation and, you know, about those things. Uh, it's very much like, uh, I think it happens to all of us uh, to some extent, uh, to all people that are like, study um, uh, are doing a PhD. I had this uh, colleague of mine that was doing a PhD in astronomy as well. Uh, and I asked him once, like, uh, also, you're doing PhD in astronomy, so that means that you are looking into stars or planets or something like that. And he was like, no, it's a little bit more complicated than that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think that those kind of, uh, of questions that it's not like, you know, I don't know if it happened to you at some point or you had to explain yourself or what you're doing. It's, it's a little bit difficult. And yeah, so that, that, that kind of thing. And then, then, of course, there are some misconceptions about Wikipedia as well, which I have to explain a lot. Being a Wikipedia myself and I have translated a lot of articles, some people think that Wikipedia is a sort of anarchy, that you can do whatever you want. You can write an article about yourself and it's going to be there for ages and no one is going to look into it and, and those kind of things. And it, this is far from, from, from truth, actually. So those articles uh, are deleted they don't comply with the rules and so on and so forth so there's a lot of misunderstanding going on there and people get it wrong most of the time what's the most popular misconception about wikipedia i heard one said it's a sort of anarchy and there is uh, mostly uh, edited by teenagers (laughs) (laughs) yeah pretty pretty far from the truth yes my uh my dad has written a book a few years ago and um, my husband actually took over publishing it. This was hmm. in about 2016, 2017. Uh, and my dad asked my husband at, as his publisher to create a Wikipedia page for him because he's a published author. Hmm. And it was up for about five minutes before Wikipedia was like, no, you are not involved. <laughs> <laughs> Take that down. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's a very 
it's a good example of something that's very rigorously policed within the community but hmm. that yeah we're sort of told it can't be trusted but in a way it's much more rigorously peer reviewed than some of the things that we read on it, a daily it, basis it is yeah. and actually that uh, leads me to another point and it's uh, i attended this conference uh, in stockholm about uh, wikipedia and um, there is now a paper that uh, I think was published this year about the reliability of Wikipedia and so how we, if Wikipedia is reliable or not. And this uh, study concluded that uh, most users, most people that read Wikipedia, don't even look into references. So, and they said uh, the longer the article is on Wikipedia, the less likely is that people will go, scroll down, and go to the reference and check if the information is right. So the problem is not that Wikipedia is not reliable, but people are not using Wikipedia critically. Yeah, people. And I think that's the point. And also yeah. I think that a lot, like, because of those tools being available and those tools getting better, from the time when we were at school, um, I mean... I, was Wikipedia you... there when you were at school? <laughs> yes, Anna. Wikipedia was there when okay. I was at school. My high school career and Wikipedia are the same age. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like you know, they—they are, they are Those schools are constantly getting better. So the beliefs that we held maybe when we were a school age, um, especially when you your dominant language is not language like most of Wikipedia articles are written in English and it's more difficult probably to police and check articles in other languages um, hmm. but it is getting better and it is getting more um, rigorously policed these ways in those tools yeah. I just have a huge love of Wikipedia as this sort of amazing bibliography if there's something I don't know about yeah I can read the Wikipedia article and sort of get to grips with it but if I want to find the academic reading about it it's right there at the bottom you know as a historian and especially someone who's relatively new to being a historian in the grand scheme of things it's just so valuable to be able to mm. find the book the article the, the thing so yeah yeah this <laughs> this episode brought to you by Wikipedia <laughs> <laughs> So, Gustavo, all that's left to say is thank you so much for being our guest today. It's been absolutely fascinating to learn a bit more about your research. Anna, thank you, as always, for being a host. Thank you very much, Georgia. Don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast, or you can email us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom. <laughs>